Chapter 24 of The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 24. Among the peculiar artistic effects of musical tragedy, we had to emphasize an Apollonian illusion, through which we are to be saved from immediate oneness with the Dionysian music. While our musical excitement is able to discharge itself on an Apollonian domain and in an interposed visible middle world, it thereby seemed to us that precisely through this discharge, the middle world of theatrical procedure, the drama generally, became visible and intelligible from within in a degree unattainable in the other forms of Apollonian art. So that here, where this art was, as it were, winged and borne aloft by the spirit of music, we had to recognize the highest exaltation of its powers. And consequently, in the fraternal union of Apollo and Dionysus, the climax of the Apollonian as well as of the Dionysian artistic aims. Of course, the Apollonian light picture did not precisely with this inner illumination through music, attain the peculiar effect of the weaker grades of Apollonian art. What the epos and the animated stone can do, constrain the contemplating eye to calm delight in the world of the individuatio, could not be realized here, notwithstanding the greater animation and distinctness. We contemplated the drama, and penetrated with piercing glance into its inner agitated world of motives. And yet it seemed as if only a symbolic picture passed before us, the profoundest significance of which we almost believed we had divined, and which we desired to put aside like a curtain in order to behold the original behind it. The greatest distinctness of the picture did not suffice us, for it seemed to reveal as well as veil something. And while it seemed, with its symbolic revelation, to invite the rending of the veil for the disclosure of the mysterious background, this illumined all conspicuousness itself enthralled the eye and prevented it from penetrating more deeply. He who has not experienced this to have to view and at the same time to have a longing beyond the viewing, will hardly be able to conceive how clearly and definitely these two processes coexist in the contemplation of tragic myth, and are felt to be conjoined. While the truly aesthetic spectators will confirm my assertion that among the peculiar effects of tragedy this conjunction is the most noteworthy. Now, let this phenomenon of the aesthetic spectator be transferred to an analogous process in the tragic artist, and the genesis of tragic myth will have been understood. It shares with the Apollonian sphere of art the full delight in appearance and contemplation, and at the same time it denies this delight and finds a still higher satisfaction in the annihilation of the visible world of appearance. 
the substance of tragic myth is first of all an epic event involving the glorification of the fighting hero but whence originates the essentially enigmatical trait that the suffering in the fate of the hero the most painful victories the most agonizing contrasts of motives in short the exemplification of the wisdom of silenus or aesthetically expressed the ugly and discordant is always represented anew in such countless forms with such predilection and precisely in the most youthful and exuberant age of a people unless there is really a higher delight experienced in all this for the fact that things actually take such a tragic course would least of all explain the origin of a form of art provided that art is not merely an imitation of the reality of nature but in truth a metaphysical supplement to the reality of nature placed alongside thereof for its conquest tragic myth in so far as it really belongs to art also fully participates in this transfiguring metaphysical purpose of art in general what does it transfigure however when it presents the phenomenal world in the guise of the suffering hero least of all the quote, reality end quote, of this phenomenal world for it says to us quote, look at this look carefully it is your life it is the hour hand of your clock of existence end quote and myth has displayed this life in order thereby to transfigure it to us if not how shall we account for the aesthetic pleasure with which we make even these representations pass before us i am inquiring concerning the aesthetic pleasure and am well aware that many of these representations may moreover occasionally create even a moral delectation say under the form of pity or of a moral triumph but he who would derive the effect of the tragic exclusively from these moral sources as was usually the case far too long in aesthetics let him not think that he has done anything for art thereby for art must above all insist on purity in her domain for the explanation of tragic myth the very first requirement is that the pleasure which characterizes it must be sought in the purely aesthetic sphere without encroaching on the domain of pity fear or the morally sublime how can the ugly and the discordant the substance of tragic myth excite an aesthetic pleasure here it is necessary to raise ourselves with a daring bound into a metaphysics of art i repeat therefore my former proposition that it is only as an aesthetic phenomenon that existence and the world appear justified and in this sense it is precisely the function of tragic myth to convince us that even the ugly and discordant is an artistic game which the will in the eternal fullness of its joy 
plays with itself. But this not easily comprehensible proto-phenomenon of Dionysian art becomes in a direct way singularly intelligible, and is immediately apprehended in the wonderful significance of musical dissonance. Just as in general it is music alone, placed in contrast to the world, which can give us an idea as to what is meant by the justification of the world as an aesthetic phenomenon. The joy that tragic myth excites has the same origin as the joyful sensation of dissonance in music. The Dionysian, with its primitive joy experienced in pain itself, is the common source of music and tragic myth. Is it not possible that by calling to our aid the musical relation of dissonance, the difficult problem of tragic effect, may have meanwhile been materially facilitated? For we now understand what it means to wish to view tragedy, and at the same time to have a longing beyond the viewing, a frame of mind, which as regards the artistically employed dissonance, we should simply have to characterize by saying that we desire to hear, and at the same time have a longing beyond the hearing. That striving for the infinite, the pinion-flapping of longing, accompanying the highest delight in the clearly perceived reality. Remind one, that in both states we have to recognize a Dionysian phenomenon, which again and again reveals to us anew the playful upbuilding and demolishing of the world of individuals as the efflux of a primitive delight. In like manner, as when Heraclitus the Obscure compares the world-building power to a playing child which places stones here and there, and builds sandhills only to overthrow them again. Hence, in order to form a true estimate of the Dionysian capacity of a people, it would seem that we must think not only of their music, but just as much of their tragic myth, the second witness of this capacity. Considering this most intimate relationship between music and myth, we may now in like manner suppose that a degeneration and deprivation of the one involves a deterioration of the other. If it be true at all that the weakening of the myth is generally expressive of a debilitation of the Dionysian capacity. Concerning both, however, a glance at the development of the German genius should not leave us in any doubt. In the opera, just as in the abstract character of our mythless existence, in an art sunk to pastime, just as in a life guided by concepts, the inartistic as well as life-consuming nature of Socratic optimism had revealed itself to us. Yet there have been indications to console us, and nevertheless in some inaccessible abyss the German spirit still rests, 
and dreams. Undestroyed, in glorious health, profundity and Dionysian strength, like a knight sunk in slumber, from which abyss the Dionysian song rises to us to let us know that this German knight even still dreams his primitive Dionysian myth in blissfully earnest visions. Let no one believe that the German spirit has forever lost its mythical home, when it still understands so obviously the voices of the birds which tell of that home. Some day it will find itself awake in all the morning freshness of a deep sleep. Then it will slay the dragons, destroy the malignant dwarfs, and waken Brunhilde, and Wotan's spirit self will be unable to obstruct its course. My friends, ye who believe in Dionysian music, ye know also what tragedy means to us. There we have tragic myth born anew from music. And in this latest birth, ye can hope for everything and forget what is most afflicting. What is most afflicting to all of us, however, is the prolonged degradation in which the German genius has lived estranged from house and home in the service of malignant dwarfs. Ye understand my illusion, as ye will also in conclusion understand my hopes. End of chapter 24 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia